Welcome to the Metal Miner Podcast. I'm Taras Berezowski, Managing Editor at Azul Partners. Today, we continue our series that we're calling Manufacturing Trade Policy Confidential. As we're getting closer, hopefully, to the Commerce Department's final recommendations on the Section 232 investigation, we turn our focus to the aluminum industry. Our guest is Heidi Brock, the President and CEO of the Aluminum Association. She works tirelessly on behalf of the association's members, which span the entire value chain. Heidi does find moments, however, to take a step back and see the bigger picture. From a personal perspective, I had the opportunity in the last couple of weeks uh, to attend some meetings out in Southern California. And as part of that meeting, I had the chance to tour a newly commissioned literal combat ship for the United States Navy. It's the USS Gabrielle Giffords, uh, named after the Congresswoman. This is a ship which is designed to navigate shallow coastal regions known as literal waters. And I just, I was so humbled by the, the presentation of the men and women that were giving us the tour on the ship. And they were so, a real point of pride for them for this ship was, this is a ship that's made out of aluminum. To hear more on what a strong domestic aluminum sector has to do with national security, among several other hot trade issues of the moment, listen in to Lisa Reisman's conversation with Heidi Brock. Well, Heidi, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. And uh, as we had discussed, uh, we're excited to have you uh, present some of the uh, aluminum industry point of view. And it's our hope to sort of bring some of these untold stories on Section 232 and and trade in general uh, to the forefront. So um, I think with that, I just want to maybe start with a question regarding, you know, we understand, or I know that we've We've written many articles about aluminum being a material that is strategically stockpiled by our uh, by the DoD. Um, I was hoping you could explain some of the applications that aluminum goes into from a military perspective, just to sort of educate everybody here. Well, Lisa, first of all, uh, thank you for having me on the podcast, and congratulations on your podcast. I think uh, this is an exciting opportunity for the industry. So as you think of aluminum, the first thing I think that's important to keep in mind is there's not just one type of aluminum, right? Aluminum is a material, a metal that you can combine with other materials to to create a new alloy and achieve some outcomes that you need, you know. So aluminum works really well for the military because it's lightweight, it's corrosion resistant, it's easily formed, highly conductive, highly reflexive, non-toxic and durable. Uh, it's also really strong and, and overall durable. So it is, depending on what kind of qualities you really need for a particular application, you can combine aluminum and other materials to get that, that des- desired value and that desired outcome. It's just this amazing base metal. And the you know you can repurpose alloys for then a wide variety of products. But you know, aluminum products we see are essential for our country's national security because you have aluminum components used to manufacture ground vehicles like the Bradley Fighting Vehicle and Humvee. You have aircrafts like the F-16, which is 80% aluminum. And then you have various amphibious modes of transport from destroyers to lifeboats as well. 
Um, and I guess I would just add too, you know, it's this is not a new phenomenon, right? You've had aluminum as a key strategic metal for our military since World War II, uh, when it was used to construct aircraft frames, ship infrastructure, and even millions of mess kits. So aluminum is and has been utilized comprehensively throughout our military for many different uses over the years. And really, each branch of the military benefits from some type of aluminum component. Got it. So lots of applications. I was intrigued by your comment about being able to combine it to create different strength alloys or, um, you know, different combinations. I think that is something that uh, a lot of folks hadn't previously considered. Let me, if you don't mind, switch gears a little bit um, and just get a little better understanding of kind of the Aluminum Association's position on trade, what you're seeing from a uh, just an import perspective on aluminum and just kind of share with our readers. Some of them are they obviously buy a lot of different metals. Not everybody's uh, an aluminum uh, in the aluminum market. So just to help us understand that. Yeah. So, well, it's been pretty active at the association on trade. So we at the aluminum association launched the association's first ever anti-dumping and countervailing duty case, uh, responding to subsidized imports of aluminum foil from China. Uh, We've also supported the administration's self-initiation of another trade enforcement case in the common alloy aluminum sheet market. And then we've been working with the administration on its Section 232 investigation into the national security implications of imports of aluminum. Um, And to kind of help with all of that, early on in the year and the year before, we had worked with Congress to request a study of the U.S. International Trade Commission to uh, conduct a study to better understand the competitive conditions of the aluminum, aluminum industry, and they call that the Section 332 report. And the final report did get released uh, earlier this year in the summer, and it found that oversupply from China is harming global producers. Um, so, you know, it's been a very active year for the association. Um, ultimately, what our industry is calling for is a negotiated government-to-government agreement to address Chinese overcapacity. This is just, this is an acute and specific issue that is impacting domestic producers up and down the value chain. Okay, so just two follow-on questions to that. The first one, is it primarily then Chinese dumped imports and and or are you seeing it from other countries? Is it primarily China? We have been very focused on China as 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 the country that we feel is not following the trade rules. Um, so, you know, your, your listeners may or may not know, China does not actually uh, send imports of primary aluminum into the United States, but they, that metal is flowing into other parts of the world or is uh, flowing illegally into the United States as, uh, as product that is getting remelted and used as primary. So, so the challenging thing, you can't, we can't bring a dumping case on uh, the challenge of primary aluminum, but what we have seen are significant imports from China in the semi-fabricated space. And so that's where we are taking, uh, taking steps to really work with the U.S. government to enforce the trade laws and, uh, and have them look at these um, semi-fabricated product segments, uh, the ones to date are foil, as I mentioned, and the common alloy sheet market that the administration uh, self-initiated a case on. 
got it. And I think most of our readers are probably familiar with that. Do you have the same issue in the aluminum industry that we've seen um, for other manufactured goods? And I'm referring to circumvention, whereby material is essentially shipped to another country and then, quote unquote, you know, some it goes under some value added processing and then is reshipped in order to avoid a duty into the U.S. Because we're seeing that, for example, in the Whirlpool case with involving washing machines, and it's alive and well in the steel industry. Is that something that is impacting the aluminum industry as well? So circumvention is something that has certainly come up for the aluminum extrusion segment. And uh, the Aluminum Extruders Council uh, several years ago did bring anti-dumping and countervailing duty cases uh, successfully, and they recently completed a successful sunset review of those cases as well. Um, and I know that they've been pretty, very active in working on circumvention and transshipment issues. At the Aluminum Association, our process is really uh, in the early stages, so our cases are not final, um, but we are certainly expecting and going to be watching. Uh, for circumvention and transshipment and, and making sure that we have good processes in place to track and monitor the data uh, so that we can work with our U.S. government to, um, to enforce the, the laws or whatever orders are finally put in place once these processes are complete later next year um, so that if there is circumvention or transshipment, we know about it as early as possible and we can work with the U.S. government to address it. So that's what's also intriguing is the um, the aluminum industry seems a little more, what's the word, it's a little less consolidated than the stainless industry in some respects because you have these different segments of the semi-finished market that have their own little idiosyncrasies, if you will, from a, from a trade perspective. Um, the aluminum industry, the trade planks from our perspective have not always been aligned with those of the steel industry. And I think part of that is, I know we've talked about over the years is aluminum is in some respects, a much more global industry. It's obviously an exchange traded metal. Um, and a lot of uh, producers are indeed global producers. You have less of that in the steel industry. But now it seems that, that the two are a little more closely aligned, at least on this from a trade perspective. What do you think is driving that or, or how has that relationship changed over the years from your perspective? Well, I think, first of all, when it comes to working on policy issues um, in the trade space, we've uh, we've had good collaboration with our colleagues in the steel industry. Uh, we have uh, been working together with them and a number of other associations in the Washington, D.C. area, uh, the Manufacturers for Trade Enforcement. We've been working uh, to make sure that as decisions or policies are put in place or considered related to whether or not China is considered a market economy, uh, we have been uh, working to make sure that the voice is loud and clear that we do not believe China is operating as a market economy. So we've had a lot in common with steel on that front. Um, but we are we are different than steel, too. So, I, I mean, I can't speak for um, how steel I really can't speak for the steel industry, but the aluminum industry in the U.S. has competed in a globally integrated market for decades, and they've come to rely on many of our trading partners to support operations domestically. And I, and that may or may not, again, because I'm I don't come out of the steel industry, that may or may not be something uh, that would characterize the steel industry. But you know, just to cite one example, our our relationship with Canada is absolutely critical. We we have for many years relied on a significant amount 
of imported primary aluminum from Canada. And things have developed that way for, you know, for good reason. So for instance, the Quebec area of Canada um, has access to a great deal of clean, renewable hydropower. And so that's why you have uh, smelters up in Canada. So we, we need active smelters in the U.S., clearly. Um, but there's no doubt that our unique relationship with Canada has also supported some of the growth in our mid and downstream markets here in the United States. Because aluminum as a product might cross the U.S.-Canadian border really multiple times before reaching the end customer. Right. So we, we are not interested in shutting off our borders to imported metal uh, from from countries that are recognized as market economies by the Department of Commerce. We do not want that to happen. Uh, We want the situation with uh, China to be addressed. And we're also not saying that China should not be a part of the global market, but we we do need China to play play by the same rules that the rest of the world is playing by. So that's interesting, I think. So there's some nuances then um, a little bit in terms of, well, it was kind of you give me you gave me the entree to talk about the Section 232 investigation. And I'm curious to better understand kind of the, first of all, we, we'll get into like, what do we think is going to happen? But I'd like to understand the industry's point of view and sort of the action that you're hoping uh, is taken with regard to Section 232, because I know there's, and that might be an area we can talk about further with regard to how the steel industry looks at it. Um, yeah, true. yeah. So we uh, back in June, we had several of our uh, members. Uh, we I think nearly a dozen of our aluminum association members testified at the Department of Commerce on the Section two three two hearing, <clears throat> and I think what you heard pretty consistently was that any final action in this investigation should provide solutions to the true underlying problem of Chinese aluminum overcapacity. Uh, Second, any remedies or follow-up actions from the president uh, should recognize and hold harmless countries that are operating as market economies, countries like Canada, uh, the European Union, and others. They are not the source of the problem, so they should be held harmless in this. The administration, from a third point, should uh, make sure that aluminum, as they consider this, they should consider the effects on both primary and the downstream producers. So looking at the aluminum value chain, make sure that we are looking at this problem uh, more comprehensively. And then fourth, we'd also suggest that they put in place a monitoring system for aluminum so that as as more enforcement cases are um, engaged in the aluminum sector, uh, as the 232 goes into place, let's make sure we're monitoring uh, what's taking place to see if if it's having the desired outcome. Got it. And I think there's some similarities there too with um, the steel industry. Um, So just a a couple speculative questions here. So let's start with, you've mentioned what you hope the the aluminum industry will see. What do you actually think the administration or you know, what, what do you think is going to actually be in that report come January something (laughs) (laughs) or any sense of that? Well, I, I, I actually think, I think that this administration is, uh, is hearing our messages. Um, you know, we're still probably some weeks out. Uh, what we have heard is that uh, the administration will be um, acting after tax reform. 
And so it looks like tax reform, you know, could be wrapping up in the uh, the next coming days and weeks. Uh, but, you know, again, ultimately, what we'd like to see is something that catalyzes a negotiated government to government agreement with China on overcapacity. And uh, so we're, we're gratified to see that, you know, our members have been engaged. Uh, we're gratified that there seems to be an understanding of the problem. And we're gratified that this uh, administration is interested in making sure that uh, we have a strong and thriving aluminum sector. Do you think there's um, risk that no action is actually going to be taken, that we'll get some report and the president and the administration won't act on it at all? I, I, I think they're going to come up with something. I, I think they're going to be putting something forward. Um, I think they recognize this is a very complicated and sensitive uh, set of relationships and, um, and conversations. Uh, but I think that they will come up with, uh, with a set of recommendations. Great. And I know we've, um, you know, my final question is kind of wrapping up on, you know, sort of the historical differences. So um, I think there are some nuanced differences, uh, which I, I think our readers might find interesting. And just in terms of how, and of course, the steel industry also very much cares about market economy status. But I think it's interesting that it sounds like the aluminum industry wants to see a solution to Section 232 tied to honoring those that are market economy countries. And I don't know, how does that play into, I guess, your position on NAFTA? Is that consistent with supporting NAFTA and any changes there? How do you, how do you view NAFTA vis-a-vis this? Oh, absolutely. We absolutely support NAFTA. Um, I think that there is going to be an opportunity to maybe modernize some things. We're, we're taking a look at, you know, rules of origin and tracing, but uh, first and foremost, NAFTA is a very important agreement for this industry, for the aluminum sector. Uh, as I mentioned, we've got such a tight relationship, integrated relationship with Canada. Uh, we at the Aluminum Association have members in Mexico. We have members that have operations in Mexico. Uh, Mexico is a key country in terms of the automotive sector supply chain, and that's a very important supply chain to us. So First and foremost, we absolutely support NAFTA, but we're also uh, very happy to work with the administration as they consider options for modernizing, uh, modernizing NAFTA, and to make sure that the that the you know the opportunity for uh, companies that are invested in the NAFTA region are the the organizations benefiting from uh, the from NAFTA. So let's make sure that whatever is put in place does not inadvertently provide um, entree for circumvention or transshipment of product, for instance. But we, we very much see these positions consistent and uh, very much support NAFTA. So I think the, uh, the rules of origin piece is also a similarity across industries, particularly for steel as well. And I know with regard to Mexico, um, my understanding is that Mexico doesn't, I mean, they have different trade concerns than the United States does. Um, but I know that they've implemented a policy with a 180 day, um, they've implemented some tariffs and duties for quote unquote, not countries in which they're not currently in a negotiated trade agreement with. And that was specifically China 
in North Korea, which the rest of us don't really care about North Korea, but the, the China piece um, is interesting. And that to me, I mean, is your feeling on that? Is Mexico, are, are they at the same risk as the United States and Canada, et cetera, with regard to imports from China there as well? And how do you look at that from a Mexico perspective? I, I do think Mexico is at the at a similar risk to U.S. border sensitivities and Canadian border sensitivities, and that's why uh, we've had you know very positive conversations with our our members in Mexico. I, I sense a real you know sense and interest in working together and collaboratively uh, to make sure that there's not um, again you know inappropriate uh, attempts at counter you know moving against or working against enforcement uh, issues or orders that are in place on aluminum. I don't, I don't think uh, our colleagues in Mexico want, uh, want to be known as or a place for uh, circumvention or transshipment. And so I've, I've sensed a real um, sense of collaboration with them. Interesting. Is there anything with regard to sort of Section 232 you know, international trade and enforcement as it relates to the aluminum industry, either primary or secondary, anything that you think we also need to sort of cover that we've missed or you'd like to add to the conversation today? Yeah, well, Lisa, you know, I think what I would I would want to convey is, again, I am pleased that the U.S. government is taking the time and putting the energy and effort into looking at the role that aluminum plays in our United States military and our national security. I'm pleased that they are looking at the issue of whether the imports that are coming in are, are coming and in a manner that they, um, that they, that support our national security interests. I just, from a personal perspective, I had the opportunity in the last couple of weeks uh, to attend some meetings out in Southern California. And as part of that meeting, I had the chance to tour a newly commissioned literal combat ship for the United States Navy. It's the USS Gabriel Giffords, uh, named after the Congresswoman who, uh, you know, unfortunately had sure. had was the uh, the victim of a of a shooting. Um, this is a ship which is designed to navigate shallow coastal regions known as littoral waters, and I just I was so humbled by the the presentation of the men and women that were giving us the tour on the ship. And they were so a real point of pride for them for this ship was this is a ship that's made out of aluminum. It is half the weight of, uh, of, you know, another uh, battleship. It is a ship that has top notch um, technology and capability. And, they were very proud of this ship. They were very proud of the fact that it only it could it could go in um, as little as fourteen feet of water. Uh, again, it just has you know d- new and different capabilities than uh, than what some other uh, battleships have. And I just I you know for me to be able to experience a tour that talked about the role that aluminum plays in supporting our national defense was, again, I, I just would say it was so humbling. Uh, and for me to better understand the role that aluminum plays in protecting our servicemen and women um, was also really tremendous. And, you know, you, I think it's uh, for, uh, for, for the conversation and the visibility to help people understand that aluminum really allows 
you know, military aircraft and vehicles and different structures to help uh, our people perform in really challenging and often, often harsh environments while also providing really superior blast protection. Again, something that may not be intuitive uh, with aluminum, but aluminum is an outstanding material for, you know, this is a metal that's used as a lightweight armor and protects uh, men and women from IEDs and other threats. And again, is just a, a really tremendous thing. And I think the other piece that our U.S. government now better understands is that you need a healthy and thriving entire value chain of aluminum that, you know, while the, the actual amount of aluminum that, ser- that goes into our national defense may be in that, you know, four to 5% range, um, but what it takes is a thriving value chain. It takes a real mix of products because the same facilities, you, you wouldn't necessarily run a facility just to service the, uh, the national security components or applications or defense applications. You need these other uh, product offerings in order to have that kind of technology and that uh, that capability to produce what we need to produce for our national defense. Well, that makes perfect sense, and it just the cost of capital for these um, you know energy intensive producing metal sectors requires that there be a commercial piece in order to support the military piece. It just couldn't be done otherwise. So, um, well, I appreciate that story, and I uh, actually can see a nice little. Uh, visual that we'll have to add to this <laughs> with, with that um, with, with the USS Gabriel Gifford. So thank you for mentioning that. Well, Heidi, I really appreciate your time, your insights. I think it's been interesting for us to see a lot of the parallels with other segments of the metals industry that are also impacted. Obviously, this sort of Section 232 is, you know, we have the they're sort of filed separately, but they all have some similarities. Um, you know, the stainless and the steel one is being one and the aluminum being the other. Um, I know that our readers are kind of all um, kind of sitting at the edge of their seats wanting to know what's going to happen. So, well, thank you again for having me and uh, for uh, including the Aluminum Association in the conversation and in your podcast kickoffs. Thank you so much, Heidi. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please share with a colleague or a friend. You can also follow our podcast on SoundCloud. And don't forget to check out our coverage of trade policy and what it means for metal buying organizations on our website, metalminer.com. Have a great week.